Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. My guest today, incredible director, uh, Andy Ackerman. And as usual, I always have a a story that sort of relates indirectly or directly with my guest. And uh, this one is is a fascinating one involving uh, somebody who I represented for about seven years, Whitney Cummings. And I just want to share to the listeners and the viewers and the audience out there, uh, if you are an artist or if you're in any uh, form of work, um, one of the things that Whitney exemplified uh, throughout my representing her and her television show was a work ethic that was just unmatched by anyone I had, I had ever seen before. Uh, I think her... Uh, her iPhone was waterproof because many times she'd be talking to me and texting me when the bathtub, the shower, whether it was three o'clock in the morning or six o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, I always thought that I had a a very, very strong work ethic and I worked uh, hard hours and long hours, but it was amazing what she did. And she had a thirst and a desire to make it that was unmatched by, uh, almost everybody I've ever represented or worked with in my life. And one of the things in the sale of Whitney that was fascinating that I can always point to is the defining moment in her career of how she sold the show uh, was a really, really risk-taking moment. 
And I'll get to that moment in a second. But suffice to say, she took meetings with different uh, production companies and people who had pods, which are um, uh, production entities within networks that have signed at networks. And she took meetings with uh, Scott Stuber and Quan Fung, who had their own production entity at uh, NBC Universal for television. And Scott Stuber had done a lot of films, most notably recently Ted that he produced. And they really got along well. And together with uh, Whitney and Quan and uh, Steve Smook, who's a tremendous television packaging and film and talent agent and reality agent at CAA does it all. Uh, we got together. We started uh, formulating ideas for the show. Whitney was putting it all together and she was doing it herself. I mean, she was doing it with the help of Quan and all of us on the team, but she was a one person band. She didn't have a showrunner with her like normally happens. She didn't have another person who was a creative ent entity she had done something and she had an idea at the time it was called in between and we formulated it and she went into pitch uh at nbc she pitched the show and to be honest with you wasn't the greatest pitch in the world it wasn't the worst pitch in the world but she had something about her that really endeared herself to the person there and she let them feel like she had a great idea, but she hadn't really written the script yet. When in actuality, she had already written the script and probably done about 10 revisions on it. And all that had to happen in the room there was for them to be convinced by her that she could write a script. And she was a great salesperson. And back then, for an artist to go in, maybe, you know, they give you like, $75,000 if you're a young artist to just write something. It's like cab fare to them. It's not a big commitment. They don't really care. And they'll take a bet once in a while. And they made the bet on Whitney. And her feeling was, I'm going to convince them that I'm prolific. So you normally have about four weeks to deliver your script. But no, no, not Whitney. Whitney delivers a script probably a week later. And it's the script that's been worked on probably for six months, but they don't know it's been worked on for six months. And it goes in and they're like, Jesus, holy shit. What, who gives us a script a week later? This is incredible. They gave her notes and already she was anticipating the notes and how she would create the work ethic to adjust the notes and give them what they wanted. And after she gave them what they wanted, they met during the beginning of the year and they decided to make the commitment to do the pilot, which is where our guest uh, comes in. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But the defining moment in my mind that stands out and that was the difference between Whitney getting the commitment to write the script and eventually the pilot was a moment in the waiting room where I was in the waiting room with Steve Smook, Quan Fung, myself, and Whitney. And the guy we were pitching to at the time, the NBC executive, his name was Jeff Engold, a very good-looking, tall, blonde guy. And he was late. And he was about 15 minutes late, and he comes by the couch in the waiting area where we are. 
And he says, listen, guys, I'm really, really sorry. I'm, I'm late. I'm just, let me go to my office, get my act together and I'll be right with you. And that's when the moment happened. Whitney stood up. She reached out her hand to shake his hand and she got really close to him with this sexual tension that she was capable of doing with a man in the business, but still business. And she looked him in the eye and she said, my God, look at you. You're like a member of Hitler's master race. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, it's Barry Katz. And uh, our first guest, our only guest, our main guest today is one of the most prolific directors in television history. He's worked on everything from Cheers to Frasier to Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, New Adventures of Old Christine. Uh, I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. Becker. Uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, Watching Ellie, Two and a Half Men, Ellen. Uh, please welcome my guest today, a real honor, Andy Ackerman. How you doing, Andy? Hi, Barry. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's fantastic. We have a lot to cover today because uh, you are really the first television director that I've had on the show, and I really wanted to have somebody in your world because I think it's a whole different level that people don't understand. So when they're at home watching a show, whether it be single camera or multi-camera that we're going to talk about, I don't think people really understand what happens and, and what the process is all about. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you was for our audience, tell them what the difference is in your mind in directing a single camera episode like Curb Your Enthusiasm where you just have one camera and no laugh track versus something, let's say, like Whitney where it's multi-camera and there is an audience, but there's also mix-ins and things like that. Uh, multi-cam, I guess it's more of the um, the theater experience. It's like going to see a play. It's... Um, we we take a script and we rehearse it through the course of a week. Um, we mount it like a play. Um, it's we bring an audience in and shoot it in front of the audience. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, 
Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Can you take the audience here uh, along with you and how it works? Like, in other words, the process of of how many days it is, the first day, what are you doing, the second day, all the way to the shooting night? It's a a five-day week. Uh, The first day is what we call our table read, and that's where we sit down and, and read the script for the first time. Uh, the writers are there in the room, and uh, studio people, network people, and uh, and it's a basically a cold reading. Uh, I'm sure the actors took a peek at it that morning or the night before, but it's basically a cold reading, and um, we just l- take a listen. We hear it out loud for the first time, and we uh, get our notes. We find if there's holes in the story and what needs work, and then the writers um, take another pass at it. Um, the rest of that day and the next day. So we have a new draft and then I work with the actors on stage and start to uh, put it on its feet and we go scene by scene and, and you don't bring the cameraman in there when you're first working with the actors. No, it's strictly uh, myself and the actors and um, it's a skeleton crew. Um, You know, props are involved and, and set decorating and so on. And, um, we do that for a couple of days with rewrites along the way. We'll do like after our first day of uh, rehearsals, we'll do what we call a run-through where we, the writers come down and we uh, perform it like a play um, as one piece uh, for the writers. And again, we look for the problems and any improvements that can be made. And they go back and do another draft. And uh, the same thing the next day. So day three is... Um, uh, after we um, do more rehearsing, not only do the writers come back for another run through at the end of the day, but also the studio and network come in and uh, weigh in. Um, so more changes after that. And day four is when the cameras arrive. And uh, with the cameras, I start putting them through their shots. Um, we go scene by scene. The actors uh, go through... Um, uh, their movement for the cameras. We mark the actors as they stop. Uh, if they so they have like tape on the floor. There's you know, where a little tape on the floor. Yeah. Uh, each time they each time they make a move, it's it's noted on the floor. Um, and then we have stand-ins come in um, for the actual camera blocking. Uh, Multi cameras usually four cameras, and um, and then I just talk it through with the cameras, telling what shots I need at certain times. And uh, and then the cameras likewise mark their moves. So um, they have tape on the floor where so they're they have, supposed to go. Right. Multicolored so, tape. Yes. So by the end of the day, there's a lot of tape everywhere <laughs> on the set. Um, 
And then um, <clears throat> sometimes we do some pre-shooting on day four. Oftentimes we do some pre-shooting because um, uh, there's a lot going on in a given episode. So we'll pre-shoot um, usually about a third of the show at least. Um, if there's any scenes that are like on swing sets where um, – Explain what a swing set is. Swing set, there's usually a main set, main two or three sets that the audience can see right in front of them. So just for you, those of you who don't know, if you've never been to a live taping, it's really kind of unique. There's like bleachers that are like probably, I would say, 50 meters long, 25, maybe 25 meters long or yards long, and probably 10 to 15 rows up. And these bleachers have televisions that they can watch. But there's also they can watch the set because uh, all to their right, all the way through to the center and all the way to the other side, there's normally four or five different sets. There's the bedroom. There's a living room. There might be a workplace. There mm-hmm. might be something else. And the swing set, as Andy's describing, is let's say, uh, for instance, let's say on the Whitney show when there was the wedding. Well, they changed the set into the wedding and then... Maybe there's another situation where they go to a party at somebody's house and it changes there. So that's what you're talking about, the swing set. Right. And also, and then we got extra space on the, on the wings of our soundstage where the audience can't necessarily see. So a lot of times we'll take advantage of that as pre-shoots and, and shoot those scenes out, do a quick edit on them. And then, uh, the night of the actual, uh, shooting, where we shoot uh, the rest of the show, when we get to those scenes, we just simply play them back on on the on the TV monitors, and it, and it helps move the uh, the show along. Nicely. Cool. And how involved are you uh, after the show is shot? Like, are you in a situation where you're the kind of director that says, you know, I gotta be in the editing bay, or I gotta see these cuts, and I've gotta make notes on every single cut, or are you like, I'm done? Because, you know, in film, a director is, like, continuously there. I mean, in the editing bay all the time. In television, it's a different world, and different directors feel comfortable with different levels. What do you normally do once the film is sh- once the, once the television show is shot? Um, I, I came from editing, so I used to be an editor. and um, Which I, we're going to talk a lot about. <laughs> and uh, I, I let the editor have his pass. as something that I, I treasured when I was an editor. Um, um, I preferred, I mean, once in a while, um, a director would hand me some notes or any thoughts that he had, a particular take that he wanted to make sure I put in the, in the first cut. But in general, they let me have at it, um, for a first pass. And, and I, and I, I do the same thing for any editors I work with. I like for them just to have their, um, free and clear look at it without any bias and, um, and then I come in and do my uh, once they finish their cut, then I come in and do my my director's cut, yeah, which I, I I love to do. I love to get in and out of a hundred percent pie of all the notes that you have, <laughs> what percentage do you normally get changed your way, the way you want it, and then the final show that gets on the air, what percentage of your notes are taken that you see in the final cut? You mean between what I've done and what ends up on the air? Yes. Um, that changes all the time. It's, um, yeah, it's, that's different every week. Um, which always surprises me when I watch it on the air because there's certain things that I did that I, I really, <laughs> that I missed that I thought that, uh, I did a little bit better. But, uh, 
but that's the nature of the beast. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't really have a, a set answer to that. It, it changes that's, that's in every okay. episode. Yeah. And so the single camera process, like one of the shows that you did that's obviously one of the greatest shows of all time, Seinfeld, which we're going to talk a lot about today. But just on the directing side, like Seinfeld or Curb, Seinfeld was a hybrid. Yes. So that's a very rare breed. So I think it's important to just touch on that briefly to, to say to our audience, how do you shoot the hybrid where some stuff single camera, some's multicam? What's the process for that? And then after that, take us through the process of something like Curb where it's all single camera and there's no audience. Uh, Seinfeld is, 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 uh, was always a, a, a multi-camera show, even as a hybrid. Um, and because of the nature of the show, the scenes got so complicated. The average, the average, um, comedy script, TV sitcom script is roughly 40 to 45 pages. And normally the, the, the rule of thumb is for those of you who aren't in this side of the business is for a multi-camera script. A page equals 30 seconds. Right. For a single camera script or a film, a page will equal one minute approximately. Right. Um, Seinfeld scripts were a little different. They came in about 65 to 70 pages. They were pretty dense. And um, so out of necessity, we had a lot of shooting to do. Um, So what started out as a standard like two-day multi-camera Situation two day meaning that's when you had cameras for a couple of days. It soon grew into three and four days, um, and because there were so many um, setups and so many sets and so much scenery, we were outside a lot, both day and night. We uh, had a New York Street set built for the show, especially built for the show um, that we used all the time. So it became a situation where we had to really make do with what little time we had with the amount of material that we had. Um, so that's the hybrid. Um, we would shoot out probably a good half of the show ahead of the time because uh, there were a lot of what we call the walk-in talks out on the New York street. That was all pre-shot, and anything, of course, outside was pre-shot. And then because there were so much uh, given scenery in a particular episode, we would have to shoot out sets one day so we could – get rid of them and then show up the next day with new sets in their place for the same episode. So there was a lot of pre-shooting involved. Um, so it was a very, it was a pretty demanding show. Um, we got a lot done in, in our three to four days. Um, in curb curb is more of a standard single camera. Although even though it's, we call a single camera, most often it's two cameras and that was definitely the case with curb and curb is, um, was an improvised show. Uh, Larry David um, came um, with a, an outline uh, to work with, an outline of the episode and, and key beats that he wanted to, to hit for any given scene. But for the most part, um, the actors had free reign to improvise, which was which was really fascinating and really a lot of fun. So it was a matter of just trying to capture spontaneity so as a director do you have to play it conservatively when you're shooting and not take chances because you don't know what's going to happen you need to be able to get what you need to get yes and no you you want to make sure you always want to have something on larry 
for example. That's that's when you're conservative. You always want to have something on Larry. Hence the second camera, which you normally camera. don't always have in the single right. camera show. Right. And uh, and then that second camera you can be more free with and try to. Was the second stuff. camera always on Larry? Uh, one camera was always on Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, most of the time when I was directing, anyway, I didn't want to miss a thing. <laughs> you start off in the business as an as an editor, but I sort of want to know. You go to Santa Clara University, I believe. Mm-hmm. And are you going to school to, do you know, hey, I want to become an editor or I'd like to be in the business? Like, when's the first thing that happened with you, anything that you saw or you that happened in your life where you said, I got to be in show business? <laughs> um, no, Santa Clara, I had, uh, I, um, I had gone to Loyola High School here in Los Angeles, which is a, a Jesuit school. And I was really into the Jesuit education. And I also wanted to get away from home. When I went to college, so it was Santa Clara answered both those um, situations. I got to get away from home, but I got to continue a, a Jesuit education. So that was the draw to Santa Clara. Um, at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, my original major was accounting. <laughs> uh, because my, my mom suggested, because since I was a good math student, you know, well, you're good with numbers. Why don't you give accounting a shot? Uh which I soon found out I was not meant for. And um, on the Santa Clara campus, right down the hall from the business school, um, where I was taking my business classes um, and accounting classes, they were building um, they were building something in one of the uh, classrooms, and it turned out they were building a television studio. And, um, and I needed some work. I wanted to get a job at school, so I, I walked in and asked if they were hiring, needed any help, and, and as it turned out, they were. So I became one of the people helping to build this TV studio, and by virtue of that, I learned how to, um, you know, learned how to use the equipment and start using the television cameras and things like that. So um, that was my foray <laughs> into the television business, simply by wanting a summer, uh, a school job. And so how did you start getting into the editing side of the business, which was your first job? And for the audience uh, that probably doesn't know this, uh, you became and are still the youngest person to ever win an Emmy for technical achievement in editing at 24 for, I believe, was WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes. And so here you go from you're going to Santa Clara for accounting. Right. (laughs) And. As fate would have it, you're walking through a hallway. You see that they're building this TV studio. You're like, hey, fuck it. I could use a few extra bucks, yeah. get a job here, do whatever. Yeah, no, literally a door opened. A door opens. Yeah. Faithfully. Yes. <laughs> and then literally five or six years later, you're on a stage holding an Emmy Award. Right. Yeah. How did it t- take me through insane. how that happened? Um, well, when I graduated from Santa Clara, I graduated with something ambiguous, like with it was a made-up major because of what I was doing, no one was doing. It was called General Humanities. <laughs> I was a General Humanities Were major. Were you a football player? Or a no, not at all. I just That's because the kind of major that they would have. It was, I was truly a liberal arts student, and they wasn't sure, you know, I had mass credits and a little bit of everything, so they came up with that term for me. Um, and then I came back down to L.A. to um, give it a go. I just started um, knocking on doors, and... Um, 
I made my way to, um, I found myself a job on Welcome Back Hotter. Um, I went into, um, it's kind of a funny situation. I'd been knocking on doors and, and dropping off resumes and things like that for probably about three or four months. And one day, and one thing led to another. Um, it was a domino effect. One person I would meet would give me another name that I could pass on and go visit. And, um, cause I really didn't have any connections. Uh, so you're like literally cold calling, cold calling, cold going out and, and meeting everything people. was cold. And what's interesting about you to meet you is it's, it's, I, I don't want you to derail your story, but for our audience, you're the kind of person who, I always felt was just the everything is going to be okay guy, the calm, reserved, never, don't even seem like you're the kind of person who could, who would ever be cold calling people. <laughs> but I know from working with you inside, you have this like persistence and fire inside you and that, that, that people don't really see on the outside. And, uh -huh. and now I'm, I'm seeing at the beginnings of it. So keep going. I'm yeah. Sorry. It was, um, I just decided to, you know, if I if I want to find work, I have to go out and get it. So, um, and I just didn't want to like mail in resumes. I and mean, this is all pre-internet, pre-email. Um, so I was a, a door to door thing where I wanted people to see my face and and try to make a connection. And um, and I had a lot of a series of great meetings. And to and what was successful about them was that they were kind enough to say, "Hey, I got a friend. Go look them up." So, uh, through the course of this, I finally ended up, I found myself at the offices, production offices of, um, a show called Welcome Back Cotter. And Welcome Back Cotter, for those of you of our listeners and, and viewers who don't remember the show, uh, it was with a, a, a comedian named Gabe Kaplan. And we talk about how things, uh, formulas, are sometimes used over and over again, but the originality of different people within the formulas don't even lead you to believe that there's anything similar. And what's interesting, full circle, which you probably realized, is that you worked on Seinfeld six years in, but the original Seinfeld Chronicles started with Jerry doing stand-up in a club. Mm-hmm. And finished with him doing stand-up in the club. And I believe the original intention was to have part of the stand-up tie into the episode. Right. And Welcome Back, Cotter was a very uh, innovative concept where Gabe Kaplan would be telling a story in mm -hmm. the beginning of the episode mm -hmm. that was funny. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the episode, that sort of related to the episode. Yeah, it's the same so, for us. So here you worked on two of the most historic shows in history. And the Seinfeld audience probably never understood that that's what Welcome Back, Cotter did. Yeah, that's true. I, didn't, I hadn't thought of that. Um, so how do you yeah. get the job on Welcome Back, Cotter? Um, it, was, it was one of those funny days where uh, I walked in and I had a... Um, interview set up with the associate producer on the show <clears throat> and the person wor working the desk said um she's not in right now um you're gonna have to uh come back later and for some reason i i said no i i'll, I'll wait and <laughs> and i walked over and there was a couch in the room and i walked over and sat on the couch 
And I was determined not to leave until I met with this person. I just got this notion in my head that I'm um, just, I got nothing else to do today and I'll wait. Very smart notion. Um, and um, about an hour and a half went by and I'm still there waiting, waiting. <laughs> and um, and I could see the the girl working the desk um, get on the phone every once in a while and, you know, kind of turn away from me. And security? Talk, yeah, sort of talking to the phone. Uh, so, yeah, I was waiting for security to show up any time to ask me to leave. But after about, <clears throat> probably about two hours, um, they fin- she finally said, okay, she's here. She'll she'll see you, the associate producer. Um, so I walked in and, and met with her, and she was wonderful and um, and took the time to talk with me and, and – uh, and, um, Commented on my um, patience and <laughs> uh, and persistence in lieu of persistence, um, and she was great. She said that they were actually had a uh, a job. They were looking for a PA on the show, and um, and thought uh, maybe I could, uh, you know, maybe that would be good for me. And I said, absolutely, anything. I'll take. Now, anything. for those of you uh, who don't know, a PA is a probably the lowest uh, job on the set. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, personal assistant to everybody, probably. Right. It's a gopher. Uh, it's basically a gopher, a person yeah, who go for this, every go for single that. job yeah. there is that nobody else wants to do. That's the gig. Right. And it pays, uh, as I like to say, $6 in a bucket of chicken. Right. Uh, so a week went by, and it turns out I didn't get the job. And she called me back and, and said, do you know anything uh, about editing? Um, because... Uh, we need an assistant editor. Our assistant editor took something else, and um, and I lied and said yes. Um, <laughs> I had done some, you know, I did some. I don't editing. picture you as a liar. <laughs> well, I fibbed because <laughs> uh, I had done some editing in Santa Clara, but I had no idea what kind of editing equipment they were using. And um, but um, I met with the editor, and she immediately found out that I didn't know how to edit. Uh, but she very graciously uh, said, "Listen, I'll tell you what." Um, and I and I brought a reel of some of my work from school, and she said, "Listen, you know, you look like you know what you're doing, and I'll I'll teach you how to use this particular editing equipment, which was new at that time. Um, it was uh, computerized editing was just hitting um, hitting town. It was a thing called the CMX50, um, and it was a new way of videotape editing. So I I was very lucky that." Not many people at all knew how to use this. So I was on an equal playing ground with people who knew what they were doing in terms of knowing how to edit a show but didn't know how to use equipment. Um, Because basically because somebody took a chance on you, they met you, you gained their trust, you made them feel safe even though you didn't know what you were doing and they went out on a limb and they wanted to help you and they basically believed in you enough to give yeah, you that opportunity. Yeah. Um, and she said, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of days to learn this system. And if I think you've got it, then you got the job. So it was a probationary kind of hire. And um, I was literally up for two days learning this thing. I just didn't sleep. I just crammed. And um, like I did in college. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I learned it and I got the job. And so I found myself the assistant editor on Welcome Back, Connor. And um, and it turned out to be the last season of Welcome Back, Hotter. 
Um, so a, a show came along a few months later called WKRP, WKRP in Cincinnati, and they were looking for an assistant, and I was recommended. And so I became the assistant editor for WKRP, and a few weeks into that show, the editor left. He uh, got a, a job somewhere else, and now they were stuck. And while they were looking for uh, a replacement editor, they let me um, edit an episode. Um, and it turned out pretty good. They liked what I did, and um, they said, call, call off the search. We're going to give this guy the job. Unbelievable! So, another yeah. another situation yeah. where a door opens, but <laughs> exactly. you but you have to take advantage of the opportunity yeah. to make it work. And yeah. you were, uh, as I like to say, undeniable in how you worked and what you did, and you blew them away. Yeah, it. it um, I always say, you know, create a problem, and right. all through the story, you've created these problems for people because they don't want to hire you. As the editor, they want to hire somebody who has 100, 200, 500 episodes under their belt. Sure. But they hired you because there's something you did in that episode that right. blew them the fuck away. And, right. and, <laughs> and that launched everything. Yeah. And so you win an Emmy that year. Yeah. That, and that was a fluke too. I mean, um, I was approached saying, what episode are you putting up? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, it's Emmy time. You got to put yourself up for nomination. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I was just lucky to, you know, be editing shows. And they said, no, you put an episode up. You, they gave me the forms and all that. So I filled it out. I put, I picked an episode. Um, cut to, um, I suddenly get nominated. Um, cut to, um, at the ceremony and I, um, I brought, uh, my girlfriend who was soon to become my wife, uh, and my parents. It was a very proud, proud night. Uh, just shocked to be there. And then when my category came up, they... Um, and, and so at that point, when you, that episode that was submitted, okay? Right. I'm not talking about afterwards. That episode that was submitted, how many episodes had you been the editor on, the lead editor in your career up till that episode? It was probably like... Probably like the twelfth episode. Twelve I've ever episodes in your yeah. life you've edited. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're in the yeah, crowd. You're in the crowd. You've done twelve episodes of yeah. editing on network television. Yeah. And you're at the Emmy ceremony with your girlfriend, soon to be your wife. Right. And my parents, who you met in who your wife, who you met in sixth grade. In sixth grade. Uh, to be okay. Right. So go on. Um, and uh, I'll never forget Jerry Stiller and Ann Mara were the presenters. Jerry Stiller, who I was soon to work with one day and and be one of my favorite people on the planet, um, announced my name as the winner. And I was just beyond shocked. I mean, I was shocked to even be there in the first place. And then when they called my name, it was like ridiculous. And I remember, um, <laughs> I remember when I was walking up to the stage, I, I probably was white as a ghost. And I just overheard someone as I was walking by the aisle walking up the stage I, I succinctly heard someone say he's so young <laughs> I thought you were uh, going to say I succinctly heard somebody say it's not his time <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're quite they're they sounded a little pissed off um, but yeah it was it was um, I was 24 and I don't uh, think you really 
had a problem getting gigs after that. No, I didn't. It was. It was. I imagine a raise was in your future. A raise, a raise happened, and um. And so this is the thing. So you're, you, you're in a career that you're twelve episodes in. You win an Emmy award. You're at the height of your profession. That when you win the Emmy, that says you know you slam that on the table, and that says I am the fucking best in my field this year. Whether whether it's not or whether whether it's true or false, that's what this group of people determine. The Academy, which is a bazillion members, they determine <laughs> that you are the best director in television that year. And so here you are, you're at the height of your profession. And soon after you say, you know what, this editing thing this shit's not for me anymore. I want to direct. No, it's not even that. It was it was uh <laughs> Um, you know, I just, I knew better. I knew that this was, it was just weird that I won an Emmy because I just started editing. I was just, I mean, I had so much to learn. I still have so much to learn. Um, but, uh, but I became, uh, in demand as, as an editor and, um, I did WKRP in Cincinnati for a, a couple, um, years. And then after that, I moved on to a show called New Heart. And got to work with the great Bob Newhart, who's my inspiration uh, for being in comedy. Um, yeah, I, I found his album in a basement drawer hmm. and listened to it on my my record player that I got with S and H green stamps and uh, <laughs> and memorized the driving instructor. But that's a story for another yeah, day. I remember S and H green stamps. <laughs> that was fun. Whenever we got grounded, we have to do the S and H green stamps or the blue chip stamps. That's right. Um, so then, and then I found myself uh, editing on Cheers. Um, so, uh, which was a dream because the show was, was a, it was a phenomenal show and they decided to make the change from film editing to what was, um, state of the art at that time, laser editing, editing with laser discs because of the, uh, the speed of it. For those of you who don't remember the laser disc craze of about 18 months were, uh, <laughs> discs that were the size of albums. Right. That were like compact discs, only right. higher quality, apparently. So I found myself in, it's, it's interesting. I just recently read, uh, outliers by Malcolm Gladwell and uh, Gadwell. Um, and, uh, talked about a lot here. Yeah. And so I found myself, you know, Having read that book, I, I felt like I was reading about myself a lot because, once again, I was in a situation where, like when I started doing Welcome Back Hotter, learning a, a new system that everyone had to be learning. Once again, I got the Cheers job because they are film editors at the time. These great, um, these two wonderful editors, um, um, Pam Blumenthal and Doug Hines, uh, Andy Chulak. Um did not know how to use this new technology that the producers were interested in doing because the film editing was taking too long for the turnaround to get the shows on the air from the time of shooting to getting them on the air. Um, so they were really interested in this technology, which I had just, again, learned at the time. I was, I was um, trying to keep up with the ever-changing technology. So they gave me as a... Um, as a test, some scenes to cut for Cheers to check out this new technology. And not only were they impressed with the technology, but they also liked the way I cut the, the scenes, and, um, and which led to a job offer. Um, so I found myself now editing Cheers. Um, and as an editor on Cheers, um, I edited for a couple seasons, 
loved the experience. Um, I got to, you know, work with um, and get to know that amazing ensemble of actors, uh, the best writers in the business, uh, the amazing Jimmy Burroughs. Um, who Jim became, Burroughs, who, who also became my mentor. Uh, as Andy will agree, uh, along with himself, uh, again, uh, I use this uh, probably uh, too much, but if there's a Mount Rushmore for television directors, uh, I think Andy and Jim Burroughs' faces are going to be on that mountain. Well, that's very kind of you. It's uh, Jimmy, definitely. Uh, not so much about me, but um, uh, but on Cheers, um, uh, that's how I got my my first directing spot. Um, Jimmy and uh, Glenn and Les Charles uh, gave me my first opportunity, and that happened because. Um, I had gotten some offers elsewhere on other shows as a lure to go do, to leave chairs to do other shows. They dangled the directing carrot in front of my face. Now, did you know at the time that you, when did you start thinking, I'd like to try this directing thing? I started thinking about it because as I worked with um, some other directors, um, like by doing pilots or whatever, by editing pilots, I realized that. I think I might be able to do as good a I think job I might as... Be, I think I might be better than these guys. <laughs> uh, I found some of the directors I worked with um, um, a little questionable, um, I suppose. Um, as in any profession, uh, wherever you work in the world, right. there's always people that work in your craft that are questionable, and you wonder sure. how they got to where they were. Sure. And you got to figure out a way to how to pass them. And so in the editing world, you did that. Yeah. And then so directing world. So Jimmy Burroughs gave you the opportunity to, you, you probably went to him and said, look, Jim. I yeah, I went to him, you know, him and, and Glenn and Lass. They were, they were the triumvirate uh, over at Cheers. And I, I, I said, you know, I've got these other offers. I don't want to leave. I, I love it here. This show means everything to me. But um, is there anything you can do to help me? <laughs> uh, and they said, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll let you direct one. And when you got a chance to direct for the first time, was there a situation where you'd been planning for this moment for a long time and you didn't have the anxiety? Because in the editing world, it seemed like you prepared amazingly well. You stayed up two nights. You learned the equipment. Mm -hmm. And in editing, there's this thing that you have. You have, I don't want to say you have time, but you're in a room that's dark, there's no right. windows, and right. you're sort of left to your own devices, and there's no sort of um, time card. You sort of know that you have as much time, not as much time, but or as little time as you want. So if you're not getting what you want, you can stay an extra hour, two, three, four. Nobody can see you at 3 o'clock in the morning fixing stuff right. to get it right. So there's not as much anxiety, I think, as an editor, as a director... You're front and center. You're right. out there, and you don't have. And what you're alluding to of those other directors you saw, uh, for right. those of you who don't know, you'll be on a show sometimes, and there'll be a director like Andy working, and you'll start taping a show at like six o'clock, and you'll be done at eight thirty, hmm. and everybody will be going home thrilled, happy, and applauding, standing ovations. And other times you're on a set with a guest director. And it's midnight, and you're still going. And yeah. I think that's what Andy's alluding to. Certain people 
don't really have a sense of how to work and how to work in a, in a way that's going to keep the morale up and do whatever. So you're front and center. So when somebody like that, like a director is going till midnight, it's all open to the world, the audience and the crowd watching the executive producers, the actors, the cameramen, everybody sort of lose their morale or whatever it is towards that person who's running the show. Yeah. And so here you are was was there that feeling like holy shit i got the opportunity and i'm under the microscope now or you just knew that you were ready uh both um and that's in that and i credit my my editing background um yeah i think you know having worked with different directors i saw you know in the editing room things that were missing shots that were missing and even um moments and performances that i thought you know, God, I wish um, this actor had said the words this way. It would have been funnier. So editing was just a, a great educational learning experience for me. I learned so much. It's I learned about the writing. I learned about the directing. I learned about the performances. So um, by the time I got my shot, I felt ready. Um, but um, it was... You know, it was frightening as hell. It was scary. I I had no theater background. I'd never really, I never worked with actors before. And like you said, I you know I came from a place where editing is a very solitary job. To so suddenly I walk on a stage and you have you know roughly a hundred crew people and cast waiting for you to say something. And that's what's so right. amazing about this shift in your career, where your your one job people. At a job, I, uh, at a place I was previously to this, there were a lot of editing bays. And I'll never forget the owner taking me aside one time with a company and saying something to me that was so horrifying and offensive because he had 50 editing bays there. And I said, what do you think about these editors? They're all here to do whatever thing. And he said, editors are like mushrooms, Barry. <laughs> They're in a dark room. You just give them some water. <laughs> A little bit of food and you close the door right and they do their thing there they grow and that's it right and so which i thought was so offensive uh but that's how he visualized them because they had no let me rephrase it a lot of editors that he alluded to that he worked with had little or no ability to communicate with the outside world effectively. Right. Let alone lead and right. be a leader of right. men and women. Right. So here you are, you're... Yeah, I you're thought of a, myself more as a caterpillar who cocooned <laughs> and came out a butterfly. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I was. So you go out and you direct that episode. Now, is Jim Burroughs there or does he, does he leave you alone and he, he doesn't stay on the set and he... Jimmy was amazing. He uh he left me alone. He um he knew that uh he, I think he had uh, enough respect for me as 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 an editor <clears throat> and um and wanted me to I think I think because that's what happened with him cuz he came when he came up he came up observing I think you know Jay Sandrich and, and I think when Jimmy finally got his shot he was left alone and um and went on to obvious greatness. And, um, um, I think he, um, applied the same courtesy to me. He was, and, and which surprised me. I thought 
for sure he'd be around, you know. I, I kind of wanted him around because I was so scared. Um, well, having worked with both of you, um, it's it's just one of the greatest things and the greatest gifts. And I, just, just to share with the audience, because there's something... I want to say this personally about myself. Uh, when I was uh, younger, uh, my my dad passed away when I was four. And I remember coming around to the kitchen oftentimes late at night, sneaking out of my bedroom. And I'd see my mom doing dishes from the back. And you know when somebody's crying, you can see their shoulders shaking up and down from right. the back. And... I used to go up to my mom and hold her uh, leg or, and say, everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that was my moment, apparently, in my life where it set me up to be sort of the everything is going to be okay guy. The guy who, as a manager, I always wanted the artist to feel safe when I was, a, if I'm an executive producer on the show, despite how whether I have little involvement or much involvement. I never want to be the guy who people are looking at, ugh, this guy is here, there's a problem, there's this, I always want to be somebody who is a positive thing, is the light. And one of the things from working with you and Jimmy that I found that is the most amazing winning formula, uh, and, and most recently working with you, is that you are the light, you are always the light, there's ne- you could be, now I can tell when you're angry. <laughs> but uh, but you have this thing, this winning formula that makes everyone feel safe and they feel like this feeling like as a talent, they feel like, hey, my job is to get out of the fucking way and let you be great. But you have your way of working yourself in and getting your influence in without the artist or the actors even knowing that they're being directed. It's the mm-hmm. most amazing thing. It's almost like, it's almost like watching the greatest referee in sports who's the head official in a game. And it's like the most unbelievably officiated game. And at the end of the game, you're like, was there an official there? Hmm. But you know that the reason why it was one of the greatest games ever was because this guy let them play, mm-hmm. but yet he kept it going the way it was supposed to go to the greatest outcome. And that's what I always found when I when I watch you. It's, wow, it's really thank you. an amazing thing. Thank you very much. That's uh, that's actually what I'm going for. <laughs> well, I, then you're then you're doing it. So thanks. Uh, and then you know, again, I learned that a lot from <clears throat> watching Jimmy. Um, when I, as an editor, I, whenever I had free time, I would go down to, uh, to the stage and watch Jimmy do his thing. And, and, and that's the way he would work. He would, uh, you know, he would watch the actors and, uh, and pick up little things here and there. And, and, uh, tell me something that, that if Jimmy were sitting here and you, your friends, you could, you could say truthfully, like, Jimmy, this is something I observe from you that I I don't do. I don't. I don't want to do things that way. And this is how I do that. And uh, if he were sitting here, he'd be laughing about it and saying, "Like that's you're right, Andy. That's that's true. I I do that, and you don't do that." Um. Wow. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I'm as grumpy as he is. <laughs> uh, he uh, he mumbles more than I do, probably. <laughs> um, but, um, 
I don't know. That's a good one. I don't know. No, but that's good. So he's a little, <laughs> so he's a little grumpier than yeah, you. Yeah, well, he's he he he's earned it. He's uh, he's amazing. I don't think you'll ever be grumpy. Um, so let's talk about a few of the shows you worked on, and I'd like to know. I'm just going to mention some shows, and mm-hmm. if you can, just just one brief memory that stands out to you about the talent or somebody working, just something that the first thing that comes to your mind about something that, okay. that might mean something to you or a great memory of something or something that happened that, okay. that uh, you thought our audience will enjoy. Frasier. Uh, another amazing cast. Um, <clears throat> um, Kelsey, of course, I, I knew from Cheers, and uh, I just, I just loved him. I love him, and uh, um, and then working with David Hyde Pierce and John Mahoney, uh, Perry Gilpin, Jane Leaves. It was just a, a tremendous cast. Another great group of writers. Um, um, you know, the writers on that show, the runners, showrunners on the show, had a special place. For me, uh, David Lee and Peter Casey, and um, of course David Angel, because they um, they gave me a huge, huge break in my career. They, um, when I decided to give a shot at at leaving editing behind for good, those three guys gave me my first series as a director, which was Wings, um, and uh, which was which was huge for me and then from and you did like uh close to 50 episodes of that and yeah. also that was one of your first uh i believe well you were you were given a producer credit in cheers which was probably right. one of your first producer credits but yes. on wings that was you moved up to from co-producer to producer on Wings. right right and um yeah so they they entrusted me with with a with a lot of trust on that show and then when they left Wings to go do Frasier, um, they asked if I can come along. And, and so I, d- I did a few episodes uh, the first couple of seasons. Cool. Yeah. Talk about working with Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen, um, I worked with briefly a, a couple occasions. Um, she, uh, the first time was on a show, which I think at the time was called These Friends of Mine. Yes. I think, yeah. Um, and um, I loved her. She was just so, uh, just an amazing talent. And um, she she was just at the beginning of, um, I think it was pretty much at the start of her sitcom career. I think she had one sitcom before that. I think it was a thing called The Duplex or something like that. I'm trying to remember. But this was her first, sh- her show. And so it was, and I just came in for one episode. It was very brief, but I, it was just, uh, it was a, um, it was a great week for me. It was great to get to know her a little bit. I believe you also worked with a political figure on one of his television shows, Late Line. Yes. My friend, uh, Senator Al Franken. Originally uh, from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Franken and Davis fame. That's Talk right. about that. Uh, that was great. Um, Al, um, and, uh, John Marcus, who is a writer on, uh, The Cosby Show. Uh, got together and came up with this um, political comedy and uh, very short-lived, very underrated, I thought. Al was really funny in it, a uh, show ahead of its time. Political comedy and yeah. success on network television and scripted go together like the words Kmart quality, not, uh, 
Not a big, uh, yeah. not a big. Uh, no, try as try as we might, uh, it didn't it didn't pan out. But uh, it was a great experience. Uh, Everybody loves Raymond. You did a few episodes of that. Talk I, about that I cast did. and working with uh, them and Ray and yeah, that was great uh, working with Ray. Um, I loved um, getting to meet and work with Peter Boyle. I was a longtime fan of Peter Boyle's, and it was great. Um, just um, getting to know him, sitting down and hearing all his incredible stories. Um, and again, another stellar cast, great uh, writing team. And uh, they were kind enough to ask me to do a couple episodes. And it was really fun. Now, you also asked, uh, um, I'm jumping around a little bit, but mm-hmm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there was a pilot that was highly touted, didn't end up going, I don't believe, uh, that uh, Louis C.K. wrote with, I believe, Spike Fierstein. Yeah. And you were asked by Louis and uh, and Spike to come in and, I believe, direct that pilot. Right. Correct? What was it like working with Louis and seeing, and, and could you see, could you see what's happening now for him back then when he was just behind the scenes writing that particular thing? Well, this, and this particular project, which was just a couple of years ago, I think, um, I unfortunately didn't have any FaceTime with Louis. Um, he was um, back in New York um, in the thick of his own show. So it was uh, just me and Spike for the most part, um, uh, which was disappointing because I was looking forward to working with him. I've met Louis. Um, we met on another project he was doing a few years ago um, that, that didn't work out at the time. But, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Um, I would love to work with him someday. Does it surprise you when you see a, a guy who's stand-up comedian roots, writing, and then steps in and basically writes, directs, edits, produces, uh-huh. does the music, uh, stars, does everything in it? Does it? Does it? surprise you that any one person is capable of doing all those things for $325,000 an episode in the beginning? <laughs> no, I mean, if you got the talent, go for it. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, back at the beginning of time when, you know, when you had the likes of, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, those, those guys back in those days, they had their vision and they would, they would do it all. And Louis C.K. is this uh, this this decade's version of that, I suppose. He's uh, that's one of the greatest compliments any <laughs> artist could ever get, especially from you. Yeah, and now, especially nowadays, it's it's hard to pull off something like that. And he's not only pulling it off, but doing um, beautiful work. Let's talk about a few more. Uh, directed, um, you know, seven to ten episodes of uh, Two and a Half Men, and you also. I believe we're an executive producer for part of that. There are a few episodes. Is that true? Yeah. Um, and so what was it like working with Charlie and, and the group there and Chuck Lorre, uh, who's the, one of the greatest, most prolific uh, television Chuck, producers? Chuck's one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with. He's really, really smart. He, he knows how to do how to do this. And um, I loved working with Charlie and John Cryer. Um, I was brought on at the beginning of the series, um, I had a deal with Warner Brothers at the time, and they asked me if I would um, come in and and, um, and uh, help um, get the show running. Um, uh, Jimmy Burroughs did the pilot, and um, I'm not sure what he was doing, why he didn't go back to it. He was he had another series or something. Um, he may have been doing Will and Grace still at the time. 
but they, so they asked me to come in and, uh, and I did the first half dozen or so. Cool. And when, when you, not to put you on the spot, but when you see things, cause one of the things about most artists, and this is not true of you, a lot of artists happen to get in their own way sometimes. And every show that you've ever done, and I can see it, and I can see it in your eyes when you're working, there's always something or somebody on the set, the crew, there's somebody who you can tell is just getting in their own way. (laughs) Back then in the beginning, could you feel like, okay, later on in this journey, some shit could go down? Or you didn't see that at all as a soothsayer of uh, being on the set for the early beginnings of that show. Uh, on which, Two and a Half Men? Yes. Um, no, I didn't see... Um, I mean, when I... I mean, in terms of Charlie, I mean, um, I didn't see any... I, I didn't see anything down the line. Um, I Charlie was uh, fantastic. Uh, he was a real pro. He was one of the first to show up, one of the last to leave. Um, we got along great. I really enjoyed working with him. Um, and a lot of people don't know that about him, but he had an enormous work ethic like a, that because a great of you know, work ethic. The, the whole family, obviously. Right. When your when your dad's Martin Sheen, I think you yeah, have that no, work ethic. you guys, I so, so totally saw the uh, the influence there. Got it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Julie Louis Dreyfus. You directed hmm. uh, every episode of the New Adventures of Old Christine. Yep. Um, I know it well because Jay was doing Gary, Jay Moore was doing Gary Unmarried and they oh, were back to back those shows. Yeah. Having worked with her on Seinfeld, again, the relationships you form, uh, and those, uh, here, our audience know in every profession you have. If you do great work and you make people feel safe and you create those great relationships with people, they'll always go back to the well. And if you look through your resume and your career, all these things, there's all these things that tie in and these relationships that tie in that mm-hmm. keep coming back and back and back. So initially in your career, you're the cold call master and the guy <laughs> sitting in, in a waiting room for two hours to just see somebody. You're fibbing to get a gig. And then as things roll and you do great work and work that's better than everybody else, you never have to make another call. There came a point somewhere along the line where literally how many people can say that they don't make a call. You've, I don't think you've made a call for a gig in probably 20 years. It's uh, just the yeah. calls come, the <laughs> calls come to you. And when you're great at what you do, doesn't matter what you do in this lifetime, people will always call you and they'll always want you if you do great work. And so that's the that's the thing behind what's happening and creating these relationships with people who are in a position where they have to feel safe with you. Mm-hmm. And uh and and that's what you've done here. And so here you're working with her on this show and she right. says, "Hey, I want Andy." I work with him on Seinfeld. I want Andy. Yeah, it's um that's one of the great blessings of my career is um having work with and hopefully we'll work again someday uh with julia louis dreyfus um we did i want to say 90 some episodes it was the weirdest thing for those of you who don't uh aren't schooled in television 
the number normally for syndication in network television is 100 episodes. So if you can do 100 episodes normally, don't get me wrong, the Gleason show was probably 33 and that was sent. But I'm talking about in today's market of of real network syndication during those time slots from 7 to 8 in your local market where you see Seinfeld back to back sometimes is to get 100 episodes. And normally the studio that's financing the show and the network that's involved financially in the show as well, the goal is let's do 100 episodes. And when you're spending between $1.4 and $3 million an episode, depending on what you have in talent cost and sets and everything involved in the show, chances are when you do 90 episodes you're going to be like, you know, fuck it. Let's just do the last 10. Hmm. It, this show is one of the most rare situations that I know. Of. I don't even know of another example of a show that did 90 episodes and said, you know what? Fuck it. We're closing shop here. Uh, it wasn't our, it was not our decision. Um, we, we did 88 episodes and, um, and we were planning on doing more. And unfortunately, uh, the folks at CBS decided we were done, and it really came as a surprise to us. And it's still something I, I'm not happy about, as all of us who worked on the show. Uh, I'd like to think we'd still be doing the show. Wow. But, but them's, them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. So getting back to uh, two shows that, that really, uh, to me, are, are near and dear to my heart. Uh, Seinfeld, you did so many of these episodes i think you did 87 episodes as a director i think you produced 44 of them um talk about the experience for our audience of what it's like standing there with jerry seinfeld and larry david and just being there involved in in some of the greatest moments in television history well um I guess the way it started was surreal. Um, I was doing a pilot over at Fox um, that uh, Larry's wife at the time, um, Lori David, was producing, and he asked me to direct. And um, and uh, it was a script that I really liked, and uh, it was a young ensemble. Um, but what I was really hoping for was that it'd be a chance to work with Larry. I was hoping maybe Larry would be involved, and sure enough, he was. And... Um, and I and I really uh, relished and treasured getting to know him on that pilot. And um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks after the pilot, the pilot turned out to be um, a little problematic. It, it uh, we had some casting problems, and uh, and it, and it didn't uh, move ahead. But what did happen was a couple of weeks after we finished the pilot, I got a call at home from from Larry um, asking if I could meet with him and Jerry. Um, and I was surprised. I said, sure, I would, I would love to meet with you and Jerry. So we met. It was like a scene out of Seinfeld. We were sitting in a booth, the three of us, over at the Dupar's coffee shop across the street from um, the Radford lot. And um, I was, and at the time, I was an enormous, enormous fan of Seinfeld. I, I thought if there's any show that I would love to work on, and be a part of with Seinfeld. And now I'm finding myself sitting in a booth with Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. And, uh, and it turns out they were, um, you know, testing the waters. They wanted to see if I was interested in maybe coming over and directing the show. And of course I was. 
And uh, and the meeting went great, and Jerry and I hit it off immediately. And um, then I got another call the next day that that um, they'd like me to come on. Um, so um, jump ahead to the, my first table read, and uh, sitting at the head of the table, and Larry David sitting to my right, and I look out, and there's Julia and Michael Richards and Jason Alexander and Jerry and and uh and that incredible um supporting cast of characters and, and I just I just couldn't believe my tremendous fortune that this one thing that I've been wishing for for the last couple of years was was coming to fruition. Um so I, I you know I just um did what I always do. I just wanted to find a way to make my mark on the show but at the same time you know staying out of the way. And um, just relishing um, being with those performers and with those writers and uh, and enjoy the ride. Was it hard to direct Michael Richards? Uh, No. I mean, it was only in the sense that he didn't know me. And um, and it was just, you know, just a matter of him um, learning to trust me. And fortunately, it happened quickly. And um, I loved working with Michael. He was... um, I mean, he had <laughs> the tremendous ability just to make me laugh till I cried. I just would constantly lose it. He was he, and he did that with all of us. Um, he would find just these little nuances that he would just invent on the spot that just slayed us. And I just, I mean, I would just look forward to coming to work every day. Just, I mean, for many reasons, but you know, um, also mostly for Michael to see what he would come up with at any given moment. And working with Larry alone uh, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, with Jeff Garland, of course, who mm-hmm. also created the show with him, but working with Larry without Jerry, how was that different? You know, what was the feeling? I mean, I know it was an improvised show, which for a director, let alone an actor, is is a shock because if for a director, normally you're going to a table read, you're hearing the stuff out loud and hear, you know, you got Larry just whispering in Susie Essman's ear, "Hey, call Jeff a fat fuck here." Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and and, right. and you're dealing with that and having to capture that. But yeah. um, well, it was fun because I was doing that too. I would, you know, I remember one scene um, with Larry and and uh, Nia Vardalos, um, and I, um, and it was supposed to be a big, huge argument between the two of them, and just before we. Um, Roll cameras, I ran up to Nia and whispered in her ear, don't say a word in the scene. Don't say anything. And she she smiled and nodded. Rolled cameras. And what was supposed to be a huge argument between the two of them became this one-sided <laughs> blowout from Larry, constantly, increasingly getting frustrated because he's getting nothing from her, which infuriates him <laughs> even more. And it turned out to be hilarious. Uh, and Nia was great. She just stood there stoically, didn't move a muscle. Did that get and, in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the take take we used. So it's gotta be a great feeling knowing when you're on the set with somebody who I consider to be a genius and you make a suggestion to an actress without him knowing it. Right, right. And that scene plays out and the person who is a genius acknowledges that the person he's working with as a director is a genius by keeping it in and saying, hey, 
That was brilliant. It's got to be one of the greatest compliments in the world. Well, but but that's the great thing about Larry. He does that. You know, he'll he'll let anybody play that way. I mean, if he doesn't like it, you'll find out right away. But at the same time, he's op- he's completely open to stuff like that. And that was that was you know part of the great fun of doing that show. Let's talk about some holy shit moments uh, as we uh, ride off into the sunset here. Okay. What's your biggest professional disappointment? Oh, wow. Um, probably um, things that I worked on that I loved and adored and they didn't work out. Um, the first one coming to mind would be a show I did um, called the um, Andy Richter Controls the Universe that uh, Victor Fresco, a dear friend of mine, created. And... Uh, it was one of the um, great, great times I had working on a show, working with Victor and Andy Richter and, and a great cast, uh, Padgett Brewster among them. Um, we just had a blast doing that show, and we really wanted it to uh, to make it uh, a success. And uh, I think it was a show that was ahead of its time. It came on, it was pre-arrested development, and it had that kind of... Um, that chaos to it that Arrested Development later um, did to perfection. Um, did to perfection, but but the even country then, didn't rally around it. Right, and then it was canceled. But, but for those of us who do what we do for a living, of course, you know the the gold standard, right? Um, and that's the show that got away. That I really was a huge disappointment to me, and um, that was uh, yeah, that was hard. Your proudest professional moment? Um, God, there's been so many that I've been so uh, amazed by. Um, um, a couple things. One, one which is a very small thing that um, when I directed my second episode of Cheers, um, I mean, it's one. Th- it's a great thing to get your first episode to direct. I mean, it's such a great thing that happens to you if you if if you want to direct but what really counts is the second episode because the first episode you do it and even if you do a good job it, it's, it's very well maybe your last it was just one of those gimmies but if they give you a second one uh and if you do well in your second one then you have a good shot at having a run and doing it as for a living and um, i remember my second episode of cheers um it was it was it was a much harder week for me. I think I forget why, but the script was more problematic or something. But it was a much more challenging than the first episode. And uh, we had the run through, um, and the run through, thank God, went well. And I remember Jimmy Burrows coming up to me. He had been gone all week, and he came for the run through to check it out. And I remember he walked up to me and said to me, kind of patted me on the shoulder, and said. Uh, uh, kid, you got yourself a career. And that was like, <laughs> nice. that was music. That was to hear him say that. And, and it just, you know, it took all the weight of the world off of me. And I realized coming from him, um, I think I got a good chance of pulling this off for a living. Um, but I think the proudest moment, um, was when I won my, um, first director's guild, award uh for an episode of seinfeld um 
just going, just being in that room um, with all those incredible directors that I admired and, and grew up with. Who were some of the people you're up against that year? Um, I don't remember in my category. Um, God, I don't remember. Um, probably a director from Frasier, Mad About You. Um, this was like 96 or 97. But just being acknowledged by all those people who were voting. Right. Yeah, to be voted by your peers. Um, I mean, I was still um, uh, loving the fact that I even had a Director's Guild card in my pocket. I mean, I was just so grateful for that. You had a little more than 12 episodes into your belt of, of directing <laughs> yeah. at that point. So it I took, did. It took I a did. little bit longer. It took a little bit longer. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it was it was a huge moment standing up there receiving it. Um, I think it was Gary Marshall who gave it to me. and. Um, and looking out and seeing, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg and people like that in the audience as a, uh, it was just a huge, huge thrill. So all your experiences on all the sets, all the television shows that you've worked on, um, if you were writing a book and you had to write like the, the story for the highlight chapter of the book that just if people heard the story or they knew what went on or how it was, or maybe it was just even a scene that was just so special or so unique that you'd want to share with people that would blow them away. What would that be? I don't know if this, this, I don't know if this is a good answer to your question, but I think one of the most, um, powerful, um, things to have been a part of obviously was Seinfeld, but at the end of Seinfeld, when we did the finale and, um, when the actors came out and took their final bow and to be standing there witnessing that was something, um, um, I mean, it was just loaded with, um, emotion. Um, and just seeing what those four actors, what it meant to those four actors, what the show meant and how, and we recognized everyone involved with that show recognized how the show changed all our lives. And, and now it was over. Um, and just, uh, being a part of that is something I'll never forget. Well, I think as, uh, as somebody who watches television and everybody in our audience, it's one of the few moments that you remember where you were when mm. you watch that final right. episode. Right. I remember where I was hmm. and I'm sure millions of people remember where they were. And of course... You remember where you were because right. you were running the ship uh, yeah. from the director's trying, chair. Trying to keep a dry eye. So, final thing here is I'd like you to give advice out there to, uh, firstly, if you don't mind, to anybody trying to break into the profession as an editor or a director or mm -hmm. as a producer what advice would you give to them coming out of school, walking by the AV room? And, uh, and secondly, working with so many great artists, what advice would you give to a young artist on what it takes to break through into the business and be able to make it to a, a sound stage where you're directing? Um, well, I'd say you, you you really need to believe in yourself right from the get-go. you got to believe 
um, in what you want to do. Um, you have to care. Um, you have to be persistent. Um, but I think you really have to believe that you are going to be okay. And, um, so anything's worth a try as long as you got that going, as long as you know that you're going to be okay, why not try this? Why not try that? And that comes from, um, just a core belief in yourself. Um, so I would encourage that. Um, and I would also encourage you, um, to create opportunities for yourself. Um, if you don't see an opportunity, try to create one, try to find ways of creating opportunities for yourself because they're not going to come knocking. Um, you got to go out searching. Um, and it's really important, at least it was for me to try to surround yourself or hang out with the best of the best. Um, I, been, I have been very fortunate in that. I've, I've, I've been working um, all these years with tremendously talented people. And I found, you know, the better, you know, it's just like in, um, in sports and athletics, I suppose, you, you know, the, the better the person you're playing with, the better they'll make you, the better you'll be. Um, so I've always wanted to, to be amongst the best I could possibly be with. And, um, I think it's, uh, important to wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> uh, happy feet makes for a happy soul. Um, and, uh, soul as an S O U L. And, um, um, yeah, I think, you know, just, um, go for it. I think, um, as long as you're do it out of respect, uh, to yourself and to other people that you're not being a jerk about it. That it's, it comes out of a self belief and, uh, and it's an honest drive that you're making. Um, I think, um, I, I believe good things happen to good people, uh, can happen to good people and, um, and, uh, don't give up. Well, I, do believe that good things happen to good people because I'm sitting across from somebody who is the example of that. Andy Ackerman, you are an amazing man. I am honored that you did this podcast. I think that you have a lot to say and I think people are going to be really blown away by all that you have to say in the trajectory of your career. And, uh, thank you so much for coming. Oh, I am thanks, so grateful. Thanks, Barry. thanks for those very kind words. And this is my first podcast. And I don't even know what a podcast is. <laughs> well, uh, neither do we. That's how new we are. So listen, this is uh, you've been listening to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame 
you get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, 'cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers; they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.